We are continuing our study this morning of the big ideas of the Bible, and this morning we're going to be talking about sin. So happy Father's Day. It is uh, such a wonderful privilege to be able to talk about such a heavy topic. I was thinking, though, this week a lot about Father's Day and what it means to be a father. And uh, I know for me, one of the great joys of my life as a dad is to see my kids begin to develop their own interests and their own personalities. And so one of our daughters, our oldest daughter, who is now 11, uh, has developed a real interest in baking. Uh, It's not uncommon at all for me to come into the kitchen in the morning and find her trying out a new muffin recipe or pancake recipe. Uh, She loves to bake cookies and all manner of sweet treats. And of course, uh, this is delightful because I love to eat them. And so uh, we have a good arrangement going on. I often find that part of my job, in fact, as the father when she's cooking for school or for an event is to be the taster. And so uh, I will glean from the corners of the cookies or the burnt cookies or the ones that didn't turn out perfectly just to help her. I see it as a service that I provide. That, that said, uh, I have a reputation around the house as the guy who will eat the cookies if they are left out on the counter. So one day, a few months ago, I came into the kitchen and uh, discovered this on the counter. For school, do not eat daddy, right? And so uh, I saw this note and, you know, my first thought was a little bit of offense, right? Because... Uh, She could have just said, please don't eat these, and just made it sort of a general exhortation to everybody in the house, but she felt the need to append the word daddy to it. And so it just felt very personal to me when I saw it, and I had to pause and think for a second and realize that she was right to add that word. Uh, The reality is that I am the one who is most likely, probably, to eat from this container of sweet treats that she had baked. Uh, And so as I stood there thinking about it, I thought, okay, she understands me and she knows, but there's something else that came to my mind, which is this, the note provoked in me some desire to eat them even more. All right. There was something in me that saw that note and thought, those cookies must be the best ones in the world. Uh, Everybody knows that stolen cookies are sweeter than cookies people give to you freely. And so I really stood there wrestling with this moral dilemma. Should I eat these cookies? Should I not eat these cookies? Uh, I just have to say, and I want you to be proud of me, I did not actually eat the cookies until after she brought them to her classmates and then brought some home. Uh, But I had to pause and think, what is it in me, that when I see a sign like that causes me to say, I want to break that rule. Everybody, if you're honest, you have that kind of a reaction uh, when you see a prohibition, when you see some sort of sign that says, do not touch, don't eat this, don't go here. Maybe you're in a museum and they say, don't touch the exhibit. And you go, but it's right there and I can touch it and I know I can. And something in you is provoked to want to transgress the rule. The Bible calls that something sin. And uh, when we talk about sin, it, it may come across as amusing that I want to eat the forbidden cookies, but the reality is we all know that in our world, sin and its consequences are anything but funny. Sin and its consequences are devastating. And so over the course of the last week, 
Our nation has mourned because of sin, because of a man who allowed the sin in his heart to turn into violence to commit murder in Orlando, right? We see sin in our world, and we also see sin in our hearts and in our own actions. As much as we want to distance ourselves from terrible acts of violence, all of us are also aware that sin resides in us. There is envy in us when we see something a neighbor or a friend has, and we say, I want that. There is anger in our hearts when we hear words coming out of our own mouths toward our spouses, toward our children, and we cringe and we say, how could I have said that? And, and we try to even distance ourselves from ourselves, don't we? We say, that wasn't really me, but it was. And so all of us are aware that sin resides inside of us. This is going to be more of a bad news type of sermon than a good news type of sermon because we're going to talk about the reality that from Genesis chapter 3, from the moment that Adam and Eve decided to disobey God, all the way through the Bible until the end of the book of Revelation, God is dealing with the consequences of sin. That the story of the scripture is God saying, I want to restore creation and restore humanity to what they were intended to be. And it takes all of the story of scripture for God to do that. Because sin has broken us in a way that separates us from God. It separates us from one another, and it leads to death. Uh, We live in a world that does not like to talk about the reality of sin. So often we talk about sin as if it is just maybe a mistake, like I trip and fall sometimes, and oops, I hurt you. The reality is that as we look at the Scripture, sin is much more volitional than that. We actually decide to sin. Sin is a disease, but it's more than that. Sin is brokenness, but it's more than just brokenness. And sometimes when we substitute the word brokenness for sin, we are tempted then to minimize the fact that sin actually is also something we choose to do. So we're born into sin, but we also make a choice to sin. All of us make choices to lie, to hate, to envy, to lust, toward pride, because sin is in us and sin comes out of us. But we definitely live in a world and in a culture that wants to deny it. G.K. Chesterton wrote this over 100 years ago about our culture's tendency to minimize or deny sin. He said, certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. If it be true that a man can feel exquisite happiness in skinning a cat, as it certainly is, then the religious philosopher must either deny the existence of God, as all atheists do, or he must deny the present union between God and man, as all Christians do. The new theologians seem to think it a highly rationalistic solution to deny the cat, 
All right, what is Chesterton getting at? Uh, if we see sin in the world, we see violence, we see hatred, we see greed, we see lust, we see envy, uh, we can say one of two things. Either this is happening because there is no God and the world is random, or there is a God and we are disobedient to him. All right, those are our two options. He said, but some people simply want to look and go, that doesn't happen and deny the reality of sin, or perhaps it was a mistake, or perhaps we are not culpable, but the Bible says that sin is something that fills our hearts and minds because of the fall, and something for which we are culpable. Right Now, you, you say, why are we talking in depth about sin, especially on Father's Day? Well, it's on Father's Day because that's just how the schedule played out, and I'm sorry, uh, but why are we talking about it at all? Why invest an entire sermon on the subject of sin when we're talking about these big ideas of the Bible? Here's why. Because we cannot understand the depth of God's grace if we do not understand the depth of our sin. We sing and talk a lot about the grace and love of God, which are infinite and matchless and beautiful. But even when we use the word grace, we are using a word that refers to the unmerited favor of God. It is unmerited because we have done everything we can to turn away from him. And so if we want to understand the gospel, we have to understand what the scripture says about sin. So that's what we're going to do for a while this morning as we look at God's word. We're going to talk about what sin is and how it has affected us. And then we will talk about, of course, the solution, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here's where I want to begin. When we talk about sin, uh, we recognize we are all living in sin and we are all dying from sin. We're all living in sin and we're all dying from sin. As Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, sin comes from within us. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Fundamentally, when we talk about sin, We're talking about something that is a violation of the character of God. Sin is a violation of the character of God. Think about uh, the Garden of Eden for just a minute. Adam and Eve placed in the Garden of Eden. What did they have? They had perfect fellowship with God, and they had perfect fellowship with one another. They even had a harmony between them and the animals. Uh, That is a concept biblically, uh, this harmony between us and God, harmony between us and others, harmony between us and the earth. That's a concept that the Old Testament refers to as shalom. Uh, It is commonly a word uh, that we think of simply as peace, right? But shalom is much more than that. Shalom is the idea that everything is as God intended it to be, that God created the world and God created you and me. Remember, we talked about this last week. God created us to do what? Reflect his character. And so uh, the theologian Cornelius Plantinga says that sin vandalizes shalom. That sin vandalizes shalom. What it is, is it is human beings defacing and destroying the good world that God has made. And in fact, ultimately defacing and destroying ourselves. Right? Sin is a violation of of the character 
of God. So that when we think about sin, it's not, again, merely ignorance. You can't overcome sin by education. It's not merely an accident. It's not merely that we don't work right. It is that we have chosen to act in a way and believe in a way that is different from the character of God. Think for a moment about Isaiah 6. When Isaiah has this vision of the throne room of God, he sees these seraphim and they are surrounding the throne of God. And what do the seraphim say? These bright and burning angels, they say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they circle around the throne and they sing it over and over and over and over. Holy, 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 because God is set apart. And what does God say to his people? You be holy. Why? Because I am holy. God designed us to reflect him. Sin vandalizes that shalom that is meant to create peace between us and God. Sin violates God's character. So when we think about why certain things are sin, think about murder. You know, why is murder sin? Genesis chapter 9 tells us the answer to that. It says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For why? In the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. What is the issue here? God is a God who makes life and designs it to reflect who he is. So to take life is to violate God's character and vandalize his shalom. Why is lying a sin? Why is lying wrong? A lot of us struggle with that. We go, well, lying is wrong because I don't want people to lie to me. Right? Lying is wrong maybe because it undermines the trust that I would have uh, between you and me. And all of those things are true. But fundamentally, why is lying wrong? Well, as you look at the scripture, lying is wrong because God doesn't lie. God is not a man that he should lie. That's Numbers chapter 23. So that Proverbs 12 will say, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. In other words, we are called to tell the truth because God always tells the truth. And we are supposed to reflect the character of God. When I lie, I am violating the character of God. Why has God reserved sexuality for marriage between a man and a woman committed for life? It's because it reflects God's relationship with his people. It reflects the unity and diversity of the Godhead, and it reflects the relationship of Jesus Christ with his people, so that in Ephesians 5, Paul says this mystery, that is marriage, is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. When we talk about sin, then sin is all of our attempts to say, I want to establish my own kingdom, I want to follow my own character rather than pursuing the character of God and how he made us. So that when we look at the world, here's what we see, is that the world bears marks of the beauty of God's creation. So you walk outside and you say, there are elements in which the world is beautiful. And you look at yourself and you look at your neighbor and your family and you say, uh, there are ways in which uh, we are beautifully made, right? We, we are kind at times. We care for others and people are capable of great acts of kindness. And so you say, I see what God intended. And yet then we also look and we go, but something doesn't look right. Something is off with the world. 
It is very good, and it is very bad. It doesn't operate like it's supposed to. I was reminded this week of a uh, sketch that my dad used to have in his office when we were kids. Uh, This is it. Some of you have seen this. It's by M.C. Escher. My dad had a number of M.C. Escher drawings on his wall. Now, I don't know how well you can see this photo from back there, uh, but at first glance, this looks like just an ordinary building, doesn't it? It looks like kind of like an old-timey building, maybe from medieval times, something like that. But if you look closer, uh, you will notice that this building violates the laws of physics. Okay? You can see how the columns move from back to front. You cannot build this building. If someone builds you this building as a house, do not try to live in it. Okay? It violates the laws of physics. All right, but you look at it at first glance, and you say, that looks pretty cool. Looks like an ordinary building. It's not till you look closer that you see it, it doesn't work. Right? Something's wrong. A lot of Escher's drawings were like this. The world is like this. You and I look and we say, people can be kind. We talk about a day like Father's Day and we say there, there, are, there are men in this room and men in our lives who invest themselves selflessly in their families and care for their families. And we have this desire to know God and we have this desire even to do what is right, to tell the truth, to be honest at work, to be content. And yet we also see in us that something's wrong because we also want to do things we know we should not. And every single one of us, if we are honest, knows that we have vandalized and violated God's shalom, God's character. And, And the biblical problem that we face is from the moment that Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, the world is infected with sin. Some of you will remember a few years ago during March Madness that the billionaire Warren Buffett offered $1 billion to anybody who could put together a perfect bracket. You remember that? $1 billion to anybody who could put together a perfect bracket. I'm curious, anybody win? No. Nobody in this room won. Nobody in the world won. And in fact, I would take it one step further. They knew nobody would win when they created the contest. You know how they knew? Nobody's ever done it. In fact, nobody has ever even predicted all of the games correctly through the first two rounds. Nobody's ever come close to a perfect bracket. Right? My suggestion was maybe he should just take up the money and divide it up and give us all 20 bucks. We'll go to dinner. Because right? nobody's going to come close. When we talk about sin biblically, what we're saying is this. Every single one of us has failed to produce that perfect bracket, right? If the perfect bracket is the character of God, every single one of us has failed. Not only have we failed in small ways, it's not just, "Eh, I've done a couple of things that might have been bad. No, we, we have not even come close to God's standards. And so sin is this terrible violation of the character of God. And what sin has done then is it has infected God's whole creation such that we are hopelessly separated from him apart from his intervention. Uh, Think for a moment 
about your least favorite craft material that your children play with? What is it? Is it Play-Doh? Play-Doh's pretty bad, right? Play-Doh gets everywhere. You know, we uh, at one point in our house had a rule that Play-Doh had to be an outside toy, right? That pretty much uh, kind of squished the Play-Doh thing, right? Because nobody wants to go out in the Texas heat to play with their melting Play-Doh. But the problem is that Play-Doh gets everywhere. But there is something worse than Play-Doh. You know what it is? Glitter, right? I heard someone say it. Glitter is the worst. Okay, do you know why? Because as soon as you touch glitter, it is everywhere, right? It's on your hands. It's in your hair. It's on your face. It's in the carpet. When you sell your home one day, there will still be glitter in the house, right? my, My daughters have both done dance classes, and they always have these glittery costumes, and for, for months, there will be glitter all over the place, even if they walk in the house with those glittery costumes. Right? There was a man for a while on the internet who was selling glitter bombs that you could send to your enemies <laughs> because he knew that if you opened it up and, went, and glitter went everywhere, what better way to get back at somebody that you don't like than to glitter bomb them? Now, why, why do I bring that up? Think about the way sin has infected the world. And it's very similar, right? Once Adam and Eve touched it, it just spread through the whole creation. And you can't wash it off. No matter what you do, it's infected God's world. And so as you look throughout the scripture, there are multiple ways in which sin has infected us. The first is this. We have actually inherited Adam's guilt. We've actually inherited Adam's guilt so that Romans chapter 5 will put it this way. Through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. And, and Paul will go on to talk about how uh, the sin of Adam was reckoned or it was, it was credited to our account. Uh, and this is a theological concept that we talk about called Adam as what we would say are, is our federal head. That's a fancy way of saying that Adam represented all of us and chose to sin. Now, that may offend you because many of you already are thinking, I I did not elect Adam, right? I didn't walk into the ballot box and go, I choose Adam, right? And set it into that box. And that's very American of you to think that way. Because throughout the history of the Bible, what we see is that as the leaders go, so the people go. And Adam represents us before God. And so his guilt is transferred to us. And we're tempted to say, not fair. But as we'll see, all of us have demonstrated that in fact Adam does represent us, haven't we? Every single one of us, with our thoughts and our actions and our words, has said, no, I do elect Adam. Put it in the box. And so we've inherited Adam's guilt such that we stand as a human race guilty before God because of sin. Right? But, it, but it goes even further 
than that. Not only have we inherited Adam's guilt, we also are now sinners by nature. In other words, once Adam sinned, actually sin is hereditary. You know, it's, it's funny when we talk in our culture about our certain sins, certain sexual sins or alcoholism or things like that. Are they genetic or are they a product of our environment or are they a product of simple choice? The answer is yes. Okay. All of the above. We have absolutely inherited sin. It is passed from father to son to grandson to great grandson from Genesis 3 all the way through creation so that in Ephesians, Paul will say this, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In the book of Psalms, David says, surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You are born into sin. You have inherited the guilt of Adam, but you are a sinner by nature and so am I. In the fourth century of the Christian church, and we've talked about this before, there was a big debate around this concept, which we might call original sin. And there was one guy, his name was Pelagius, and Pelagius was a monk who denied the idea of original sin. Pelagius said, no, you are basically all right, uh, that what you have been given by nature is actually uh, the ability to please God with what you do. So Pelagius said, you're not really that bad, and if you work hard enough, you can merit the favor of God. So that when Pelagius used the word grace, he simply meant God has already given you all that you need to fill out that perfect bracket. So go for it. And his opponent was named Augustine. Some of you know him as Augustine and his grass grows in your yard, right? We call him Augustine when he's a theologian, right? And Augustine said, absolutely not Pelagius. All of us are sinners by nature. And the things we do are only a symptom of a much deeper sickness. And that is, I cannot please God with what I do. And so I have to have the intervention of God. I have to have the grace, the unmerited favor of God credited to my account. See, just as the sin of Adam is reckoned to me. The righteousness of God has to be reckoned to me through somebody who is righteous, and that somebody is not me. All of us are sinners by nature. But it goes even, of course, one step further, which is all of us are sinners by choice. Most of us recognize that. Romans chapter 3, there is no one righteous not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. How many times does he say no one? No one is good. All have turned away. So verse filled with superlatives. There's not a person in the world who has done what is right. We all have turned away as a result of our rebellion against God. So we're sinners by nature, but we're sinners by choice. And so now what we face is this situation 
in our hearts and our minds where uh, we, we kind of want to do the right thing, but we really kind of don't. And Paul describes that, in fact, even in Romans chapter 7. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. All of us can relate to this. Uh, Think about your desire to uh, take good care of your body. You want to eat well. You want to eat healthy. You want to exercise. But you really don't want to exercise. right? You really don't want to eat well. You really want to eat cookies. right? But you want to. You want to be healthy. You want to do what's right. right? Think about the area of sexuality. We say, I, I want to please God with my body. Right? But, but transgressing those boundaries of what God has designed, sometimes it feels good, doesn't it? Right? I want to be kind to other people, but let's face it, sometimes a few choice and angry words on Highway 6 just feels right to our soul, doesn't it? those gestures, those words, those things we say, even to people that we love as they're coming out of our mouths all too often. It feels really good, but it feels really bad because we want to do what's right, but we can't. And there's a degree to which we even rejoice in doing what is wrong, at least at the moment. We've talked about uh, this idea once or twice in the past when you know, we talked about, I, you know, our family used to always, I'd say once every three or four months when Shannon and I were first married, we would go and just order a bucket of fried chicken from KFC, right? And I, I love every so often eating a bucket of fried chicken. It always tasted so good. It always looked so good. It always felt so bad later, right? And that's what sin does to us. It has infected us in every way. And the terrible consequence of it is that it it destroys us. Sin destroys God's people. A a number of years ago, we borrowed a friend's car while our car was in the shop. And her car was a Volkswagen. And uh, we did not realize when we borrowed the car that it required diesel rather than gasoline. And so in an attempt to be kind, uh, when we were going to return the car, I took it to the gas station and I filled it up with gasoline all the way to the top. And right as I finished filling it up, I looked down and I saw that little note that said diesel only. And I thought, oh no, (laughs) right? I wasn't even sure what would happen if I were to drive the car, I just thought, I don't even want to try it. And now we're at the gas station, and I don't even know what to do. And so uh, first I called my friend, and I apologized profusely. I said, I just wasn't paying attention. I filled it up with gasoline. My suggestion is that we don't try to drive it. Turns out that's a good suggestion uh, when you have filled such a car with gasoline, because we would have destroyed the engine. Uh, It cost us several hundred dollars to drain her car of the gasoline, clean it thoroughly out, and have it refilled with the right fuel. And why do I share that? Because sin is like putting the wrong fuel into a system that God made to run through him. 
right? So we, we fill our minds, we fill our hearts, we fill our bodies with things that displease him. And while they feel good, they're wrecking the mechanism. And so if we continue on that path, we die. So that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate that apple, the apple, it wasn't an apple, excuse me, ate that fruit, and they filled their bodies and their spirits with fuel that God did not intend them to consume, God said, on the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Now, they didn't drop dead the moment they ate it. But they died. Why? Because death is separation from God that ultimately will result in us six feet under and apart from Him forever. Death results in separation from God because God is holy. He cannot abide sin in His presence. The book of Psalm chapter 5, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Remember, sin violates and vandalizes God's shalom. So he cannot dwell with it. So our sin has separated us from him. That separation is spiritual death. And the physical consequence of it is that we will one day lie in a grave so that God in his curse on Adam and Eve says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. Sin results in physical death. It corrupts us, and it kills us. Sin violates God's character. Sin infects God's creation. Sin destroys God's people. This is the bad news that we see when we read the Bible. There is no escaping the reality that you and I are sinners. Sinners who are separated from God and face the potential of eternal separation from God in hell. Not just because we made a little mistake and tripped and fell, but because we have willfully, consistently, rebelliously violated God's plans. No matter how good we may see ourselves to be, no matter how well-meaning we may appear to those looking in, we are all full of sin. We are full of the pride that wants to elevate ourselves above others and even above God to say that I am not a sinner and you are. We are full of the envy that when we look around and compare ourselves to others, we say, I want what you have. We are full of lust and greed that says, I will take what is not mine. We are filled with deceit and lies to protect ourselves and get what we want out of life. And we are full of hatred and violence that may stop short of pulling a trigger but still that wishes ill upon our fellow creatures made in God's image. And so all of us are sick. All of us are hopeless. All of us are rebellious and destined for death. So what do we do? Well, the the biblical testimony is this, 
that God has done the work to save us from our plight. The only way of salvation is through what Jesus has done. That Jesus, in fact, is the only person who filled out that perfect bracket, who in his life and his death and his resurrection perfectly reflected and still reflects the character of God. And he took our death on himself on the cross. And he rose again. And he put sin itself to death and he put death itself to death so that salvation is found in him. And all who trust in Jesus have eternal life. That's why in Romans 7, Paul laments, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? He says what? Praise be to God in Jesus Christ who has set us free from the power and the penalty of sin because of what he's done. So as we think about sin, as I close, I want to exhort us to do two things. And the first is simply this. We'll move past Romans 8 for a moment. One, acknowledge the bad news of sin. All right, acknowledge the bad news of sin. When we talk about who we are, when we talk about the gospel, I want to exhort us, don't rush to grace and skip over sin. Because we cannot understand grace until we understand sin. Not only do we acknowledge it in the world, not only do we acknowledge it in others, but we acknowledge it in ourselves as well. That even as Christians, we still are sinful. We are sinners and we are saints. And so you and I need the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ every bit as much today as we did the day we trusted in Jesus. And the world in which we live is in a desperate need of an understanding of its own sinfulness and the solution that God has provided. So we acknowledge the bad news of sin. Do not shy away from stating the truth that we all are sinners and then proclaim the good news of Jesus. Once we know the problem, we proclaim that in God, he's provided a solution. One that doesn't come from us, but that comes from the depth of the love and mercy of God's character. The one who made us in his image so that we would know him. So that we can spend eternity alive in his presence, connected to him, free from the penalty of sin. Because part of God's character is this deep desire to have men and women who know him and worship him and love him forever. He is a God of love and mercy and forgiveness who saw us while we were yet sinners and gave Jesus Christ to die for us. So we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and his redemption that he's provided for us from our sin. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word this morning. Such a heavy topic, Father. And yet, 
we recognize it's one we need to hear. That we are not, in many ways, like you. You designed us to be like you, but, but we, we've rebelled against that design. And so we ask for your forgiveness and we praise you that in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, you've provided a way for eternal life. We praise you. We pray we would be free of the pride that keeps us from seeing our sin. I pray we'd be free of the fear that keeps us from proclaiming the reality that every person is dead in sin. Father, we pray that you would empower us through your spirit to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time, and we pray that as we go from here, our hearts and our minds would draw closer to you as we seek to be your ambassadors in a world that needs you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.